Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So in Germany in 1517, in the days before, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, if you had a message that you needed to get out, especially to the church, you literally nailed it to the church. So Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic monk, when he, when he needed to get his message out to the church, uh, he wrote it in the form of the 95 Theses, and he nailed that document to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And, um, and his theses were meant to call the church back to, uh, you know, more like a more faithful expression of faith in Jesus, calling the church back to repentance. In fact, the very first thesis from Martin Luther there is, was this. Thesis number one said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, Repent, will that the whole life of believers should be repentance. The whole life of a believer should be repentance. He's saying like, not, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like there's a, a hack or a shortcut. Uh, but, but like followers of Jesus need to be living a lifestyle of repentance. And, and that's probably not like, you know, a novel sort of revolutionary idea. You, you might wonder like, why do they need to say that? Why did that even need to be said? And the answer is because... Um, in those days, when, when Martin Luther looked around Europe, he saw the church embroiled in this practice of selling indulgences. And indulgences, you, what happens is, uh, a, you know, somebody travels around the town and they, they sell these certificates. And these certificates are basically like a, a get out of purgatory um, ticket. Okay, so like you pay your money and in exchange, the Pope promises that either you or somebody uh, on whose behalf you, you've bought this indulgence, they don't have to spend any time in purgatory, which, which isn't even a thing, but, um, but they get to go straight to heaven. And fun fact, I happen to have right here an, an actual indulgence. Somebody in my family a few generations back bought this on behalf of my grandfather, and, uh, you know, if I were still a practicing Catholic, I'd be covered. But um, I'm not. And, and, you know, most of you probably haven't even thought about indulgences, and, and you probably won't. But the thing is, what troubled Martin Luther in, in those days is that these indulgences had become an alternative to, like, genuine uh, repentance. Okay? This was... Like, what do you need to repent for if you can just buy an indulgence? So it's an alternative to repentance. And it seems to me, you know, 500 years later, we're not dealing with indulgences, but we are just as, as tempted to seek other alternatives. Somebody who's been really helpful in, in helping me understand not just what repentance is, but why repentance is so important is C.S. Lewis. And in his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis said, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now listen to this. Lewis says that 
It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without repentance, you are really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Okay, so we're in our second week of, of three in this series called Relearning the Way of Jesus. And we are, you know, as we move into the fall together, we thought, you know, it's really, it'd be a really good thing to do to get on the same page and go back to the start of Jesus' ministry in order to sort of go back to basics and just sort of zero in on the essentials of what the way of Jesus looks like. And, when, and, and so in the passage we just heard, Jesus begins his public ministry in uh, the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says that in light of the kingdom, because the time has come, there, there's like three things that make sense. You'll, you'll repent, you'll believe the good news, and then he goes on and says, you'll follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. I'll make you fish for people. And, and last week we began this study by talking, by asking, what does it mean to believe? What is it, what is Jesus looking for in terms of what we believe? And we saw, we looked at the thief on the cross, remember? And, and we saw that belief isn't about mainly what we believe in, but how. And, and Jesus doesn't just want to be believed in, he wants to be believed. You remember that? And so today, uh, we're going to go on and talk about repentance and, and ask, what does Jesus mean by repent? Like when he tells people, repent, what does he, ta- what does he mean there? And so today, what, what I want to do is, is share what repentance is, but also what it is not by talking about three of the sort of alternatives that might face us today. And those, those three uh, alternatives are religion and uh, certainty and consumerism. And so we'll look at each of those in turn, religion, certainty, and consumerism as alternatives to repentance, okay? So let's just dive in. Let's begin with the first one, and we're going to talk about the way of religion. We're going to see that repentance and religion are not the same thing. And to see this, I want to look at the rich young ruler. And this might be a, a, a familiar uh, story to you, but let's, let's check it out. In Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning at verse 18. So would you join me there in Luke 18? And Luke, the gospel writer, he says uh, that a, a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus gives a, he starts to go through the list of, these are, this is just like, you know, this is faithfulness 101. This is like, these are like some of the basics. These are some of the commandments, okay? And Jesus is going through these. And verse 21, it's almost like the, this rich young ruler, he almost interrupts Jesus. He's like, verse 21, uh, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Like, I get it, Jesus. I know this stuff. Like, you might not realize this, Jesus. I actually know scripture really well. I've been to synagogue all my life. I went to Hebrew school. I'm well-taught, well-trained. And as you can see, things are working out pretty well for me, you know? Like, God has rewarded me, based, if you can tell by the way I'm dressed and based on the company I keep. So, yeah. Well, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to the man, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
Now you'd expect, if this guy knows what he, as much as he thinks he knows, you might expect him to go like, okay, Jesus, I'll do it. But that's not what happens. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it probably needs to be said, Jesus isn't saying that rich people aren't welcome in the kingdom, okay? Uh, What he's saying is, people with wealth tend not to want to change lords, okay? They like being their own lord. And, and, and you look at a guy like the rich young ruler with all that he knows and all he's been trained and uh, taught to, to believe. You're like, how does this happen that a person can become so oriented around his wealth that he rejects Jesus? The one that his, all of this training and teaching was about and he rejects him. Uh, and, and you're like, why? Well, because he doesn't want Jesus. He doesn't want a personal living uh, Lord and Savior. He wants he wants a religion. He wants a religion, okay? And, and the thing about religion is religion asks nothing of you. Religion makes no demands of your time or your ethics or your, uh, your affections and the things that you love. That's how religion works. In religion, as long as you believe the truth and you, 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 know, you keep the list of commandments and instructions, as long as you're willing to do that, you're good. You're safe. And you can be a nice religious person, like the rich young ruler, whose life is totally oriented around his wealth, and, and never repent. Never repent. And that's, that is absolutely not the way of Jesus. That is the, an alternative to repentance. Religion is an alternative to repentance. And an, another alternative, second alternative, is the way of certainty. The way of certainty. Um, to show you what I mean, I want to uh, come with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 8. Okay, back up about 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go back to Luke 8 and join Jesus near a town called Gerasa. All right, so in Luke chapter 8, Jesus uh, has just, you know, done this really incredible healing in, in where, where he had met this, this man who is tormented by so many demons that he calls himself Legion. And the people in the town of Gerasa, where this guy lives, they don't know how to deal with him. So they tried chaining him up. He broke the chains. They tried uh, armed guards to protect him. And he overpowered them. He beat them up. So now the town leaves him alone and he leaves them alone. And there's peace and quiet as long as they leave this, this man, Legion, to hang out by himself. And he does so. He hangs out in the graveyards naked. And that's his lifestyle now. But when, when, when this guy is living that life, at least things in Gerasa make sense. And Jesus arrives and he helps this man by, by sending the demons out of him. And the demons go into a herd of pigs. The demons rush off the cliff and they die. And that's, you'd, you would think, if you'd seen that, if you're you know, among the people of the town of Gerasa, you'd think that that's a pretty compelling uh, demonstration of Jesus' power. Like, wow, it's pretty hard to argue with what you've just seen. Maybe now the people of Gerasa will pay attention to what Jesus has to say. Maybe they will repent. Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 34, 
we read that when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and they reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Now, this is interesting, okay? Like, they have all the proof they need, they, they need, and you would think that for them, this is good news. Not only has this man been freed of his demons, he's now healthy and free, and, and, and he's, uh, you know, able to flourish and thrive. But not only that, now Jesus is with them, and who knows what else he might do, you know? And the cost of it was, it was a, just a few pigs. No big deal. You'd think that this is amazing news, and they're excited about the, new, the possibilities. Well, verse 37, then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. They asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and left. Do you hear this? The town is overcome with fear. Jesus has just changed this man's life, transformed this man's life, and they're afraid. What are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? Maybe, maybe fear of change? Maybe they're afraid of, uh, of a man that they don't completely understand. Maybe they're afraid of uh, the man who formerly was known as Legion. Maybe they're afraid of, of what he is going to be like. I mean, what if he wants to be a, a, a fine, upstanding citizen? What if he wants to be mayor? That maybe that's scary. So, so you know, maybe it's the fear of sort of upsetting the status quo. But it seems to me they've got all the proof that they need now to see that Jesus brings new life and freedom and healing. And it could be so good for the town of Gerasa. It could be so good for them. It would be different, but it could be so good. And instead, you know what the reaction is? The reaction is, uh, thank you, Jesus. We'll actually, we'll be quite okay from here, all right? We got this. All right, why don't you just move on, Jesus? You're pretty busy. You move on to the next town and, and we've, we've got it from here. Okay, thanks. And I, I sort of wonder, you know, when I think about the town of Gerasa, I wonder, like, I wonder if, if they could, would they prefer to have the pigs back and, and have this man return to his former life with the demons? Would they, would they, have, would they prefer to have that? Is that what they would want? And I, I sort of think they would. I sort of think they would. Because I think, I think that sometimes we value certainty and familiarity and, and predictability and routines. Those things are helpful and they give our lives meaning. And, 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 and we value these things so much that we resist what Jesus wants to do. We resist him and we resist the healing and we resist the help that he wants to offer if we repent. And it's like, maybe, you know, maybe we would prefer just a nice, predictable, uh, safe, quiet life with us as Lord, with, like under our own control. And you know what, friends? Like, certainty is nice. I totally get that. It is nice to, to have a predictable life where you're, there are no surprises and, and nothing risky ever happens. But you can have that. You can have the way of certainty or you can have the way of Jesus, but you cannot have both. You can't have both. 
And so for some, I think that this life of certainty, I think the way of certainty is, is an alternative to repentance. It's an alternative to repentance. Well, the third way that I want us to, to consider uh, here as we talk about what it means to repent is uh, what we see in the way of Judas, actually. Judas shows it to us. And I, I call this the way of consumerism. It's the way of consumerism. Would you turn with me, uh, if you can, to John chapter 12? In John chapter 12, we're in the town of Bethany. And this is shortly after Jesus has performed an amazing miracle and he's raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Okay? And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are so grateful for having their brother back that they host a party for Jesus. And Jesus is the, is the guest of honor. And in the middle of the meal, in verse 3, chapter 12, we read, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped it, sorry, uh, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So listen to this, verse 5. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And uh, John tells us that he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, I just think that this is a helpful glimpse into what makes Judas tick. Now, it's, it's helpful to realize, like, there was a time when being an apostle had certain benefits, you know? Like, if you, there was a season where if you're an apostle, you've kind of got it made. You're, you're relatively famous because every town you go into, there are people there who know your name. And they're willing to feed you. And they're willing to donate money to the cause, Okay, And on top of all of that, this bunch of suckers, they leave their money just sitting in a purse and they've asked Judas to control the purse. And so, of course, he, he used to help himself. Now think, Judas has spent three years at Jesus' side. He has heard every sermon. He uh, saw every miracle and every healing and every exorcism. But this is the point for Judas, uh, where there is a separation. This is, this is where it's too much for Judas. And you're like, how, why this? Why of all places, after all that he's seen, how come this is the final straw for Judas? Well, it's because Judas is a consumer, okay? For, for Judas, this perfume that's just been poured out on Jesus' feet, this cost a year's wages. It's like, think of all the things we could have done with that money. And, and this is where we really see how, how different Judas and Jesus' values really are. They really couldn't be more different, okay? In fact, when Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, when he tells the story, he has Jesus praising the woman for her faith and saying, everywhere the gospel is preached, this woman's uh, deed is going to be celebrated. And so while Jesus is praising the woman, Judas, right after this in Matthew 26, goes straight out to the chief priests. And in Matthew 26, verse 15, he says to the chief priests, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. This is the moment where Judas decides to betray Jesus. 
And it's because Judas relates to Jesus as a consumer. As a consumer. To Judas, Jesus isn't Lord. Jesus is like the golden goose. He's useful. He's profitable. He serves a purpose. All right? Jesus provides certain benefits to Judas. And so the cost of it is, you know, he can, Judas can tolerate, you know, all the Bible stuff and the kingdom stuff. That's the way that the mind of a consumer works. It all shakes down into costs and benefits and bottom lines. And it seems to me the danger of that, the danger of consumer Christianity, is that sooner or later, the costs outweigh the benefits. It seems to me that always happens. Eventually, the costs are going to outweigh the benefits. And when that happens, consumers leave Jesus to find a better deal. They leave him to find a better deal. And, and, and we see that with Judas. Judas was bought in for a time. But you know, buy-in isn't the same as repentance. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, you know what consumer Christianity is? Consumer Christianity is just delayed rejection. It is, it is just delayed rejection. Now, we've seen three alternatives to repentance. The first alternative was, was uh, religion. The other alternative was certainty. And the third was consumerism. So we've seen what repentance doesn't look like. Now let's have a look at what it does look like. In fact, listen to this from the pastor, Eugene Peterson. He pastored for 50 years. And Eugene Peterson wrote, We live in a world where Christ is king. If Christ is king, everything, quite literally everything and everyone, has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that consists in an obedient following of Jesus. This is not easy. A total renovation of our imagination, our way of looking at things, what Jesus commanded in his no-nonsense imperative, repent, is required. Repentance is required. I just think Peterson nailed that. Man. Like, Jesus' kingdom, the fact that Jesus is a king and his kingdom is coming, means that Jesus has a, like a rightful claim on every part of every life. Okay? And, and, and as king, of a kingdom, Jesus wants to reshape us. He wants to renew us so that, he, so that we can see the world as he sees it. And so that, so that we, can, we can love what he loves and we can hate what he hates. And so that his values become our values. We Sometimes in benediction, we use the word orthopathy for that. It means loving what Jesus loves and, and hating the things that Jesus hates. But you know, that only happens by repentance. We can only experience this transformation by repentance. And, and a way you might think of repentance is putting your full weight on Jesus. Putting all your weight on Jesus. And I want to take this moment as we, as we kind of approach the, uh, uh, as we wrap up to, um, to see what this looks like. I want to introduce you to somebody special in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. And we don't know this woman's name, but a dear old saint who's been bleeding for 12 years. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, I just want to say, like, I can't imagine what it's like to be this woman. I, I don't think any man, uh, I don't think any guy can, can appreciate what it's like to be her. I mean, every day she's bleeding. Every night she goes to bed, she's still bleeding. Every morning she wakes up, she's still bleeding. Every, every time she wants to cook a meal, every time she needs to go to the market to pick up food, she's, she's still bleeding. Every day and every week of her life, every month of her life for 12 years. And she's done everything she knows how to do. She's, con- she's consulted every doctor. She spent her life savings and none of it has worked. And it seems to me, you know, women bleed in order to produce life. But for this woman, it's, it's, it's felt more like a death. And, and under the law, this woman is unclean. And the law makes no exception uh, for somebody who's been bleeding this long. And so no human contact. That's this woman's lifestyle. Nobody can touch her. In fact, in Leviticus 15, not, just, not only is she not allowed to touch other people, but even her bed is unclean. Even her uh, furniture is unclean. Anyone who touches her or touches her, her furniture, and I just wondered, like, man, is there anybody in all of Scripture who is more alone than this woman? We, we don't even know her name, okay? She's, the, she's anonymous. All we know is somehow she's heard of Jesus, she's heard that he's in town, and, and she wouldn't dare walk right up to him and ask him for, for help. But what she does do in verse 28 is she thinks to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And she does. She touches his, his cloak. And it's like, finally. He, he, he actually did it. Like this, it finally, something worked. And she's healed. Well, verse 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once. Verse 30, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet yet you can ask, who touched me? Like, look at all these people. How are we ever going to figure out who touched you? Look at all how many people around here. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Now, it seems to me this woman, she's got some options. Now that she knows that Jesus is looking to see who touched him. Um, so, so what's she going to do? Maybe she runs. Maybe she's, uh, maybe she's going to lie. Maybe point to somebody else. It wasn't me, Jesus. It must have been her. Look at this woman. Her. She's, it's, it was definitely her. Uh, maybe, she's, um, maybe she's going to apologize and like fall to her knees and, and beg Jesus to leave her alone. And, you know, if she were Judas or the rich young ruler... Or if she were one of the Gerasenes, maybe that's exactly what she would do. Because, because for them, Jesus is interesting. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is a great guy to have around. But they don't see him as Lord. And she does. Because look what happens. Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And my friends, that is repentance. Okay? That's, I think that's an awesome example for us. Jesus is going to go on and call this in verse 34, faith. And you know why? It's because she doesn't know what's going to happen next. She's feeling this fear and she, she is 
trembling. All that she knows is this Jesus isn't someone that you lie to. Okay? Jesus isn't someone who you hold back parts of your story from. Jesus is Lord. And it's like that, that means something. And, and that's why she decides, verse 33, that despite her trembling, despite her fear, she decides to tell him the whole truth. I'm going to tell him the whole truth. Like, here's my story, Jesus. Here's the whole thing. All that I am, all that I have ever done, I'm just, I'm done hiding. I'm holding nothing back. All my life is in your hands. Do with me what you will. I'm laying it all out for you, Jesus. And that's repentance. That's repentance. And in verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's repentance. So uh, I've got this chair up here on the platform. Okay, you see this chair? So this chair represents uh, faith in Jesus. Okay, you with me? This chair represents faith in Jesus. Now, how do you show a chair that you trust it? How do you show that you trust in a chair? Yeah, you sit on it, right? You sit on it. And that act of sitting down, that's repentance. That's repentance. And, and that act of sitting down, that is so different from the alternatives that we've looked at. Now, we talked about the way of religion. And the way of religion looks like this. Maybe you come up, up alongside the chair and, and, and you, you sit down and you point to the chair and you study the chair, you admire the chair and you can see that this is a fine chair. It's the, there's no stronger, finer chair than this. You know, Look at the fine mahogany and look at the carving. It's just, this is a beautiful, old, priceless chair. But what's the problem? Yeah, I'm not sitting in it. All the while, I'm, I'm sitting in another chair beside it. None of my weight is on the chair. Well, that's the way of religion. Then we talked about the way of consumerism. And in the way of consumerism, you know, maybe you've got your arm around the chair, you can throw up the deuces, you throw out the duck lips, and you're living your best life, you know, on Instagram, you're hashtag blessed, right? Now, everything looks amazing in your life. Everything looks amazing. You and the chair side by side look amazing. And you derive all kinds of benefit from being near the chair. And what's the problem? Yeah. Chairs aren't meant to be posed with. Chairs are meant to be sat on. The consumer hasn't put any of his or her weight on the chair. Well, there, then we talked about the way of the garrisons. And, and this is where, you know, you look at the chair and you're like, I just, I don't think that this one chair is going to do. So you maybe set up some other chairs and um, sort of put them in a row. And, um, well, there's, you know, we'll put this one here. We'll put that one over there. Yeah. We'll put that one there. Yeah. And so you've got a nice, uniform, neat, tidy, organized arrangement of chairs. Except, you know what? It turns out this big one is kind of in the way. So maybe I'm just going to push it over here. I'm just going to move it to the back. There we go. There, there we go. Now we got all of these beautiful chairs. We had to move the big one out of sight, but that's not a big deal. Um, but we've got a beautiful arrangement of chairs. And it, you're like, you, before you realize, before you even know what happened, you realize, oh my goodness, my life actually makes more sense to me 
without sitting on that chair. I've got a nice, neatly arranged set of chairs and Jesus isn't part of it. Well, that's the way of certainty in the Gerasenes. And then, but you know, the way of repentance, the way of this woman, what I love is she doesn't like boldly stroll up and plop all of her weight down on the chair. This woman is afraid and trembling with fear. She's not sure what's going to happen next. She kind of slowly, carefully makes her way through the crowd and she puts her weight on the chair a little bit at a time and it counts. It counts. She slowly, carefully, you know, discerningly puts her weight on the chair. But when she's done, her weight is on the chair and that's more than you can say for the Gerasenes or Judas or the rich young ruler. She's put her weight on the chair. Jesus, everything that I am is now in your hands. All that I'll ever be, all that I have, everything that I love, all my dreams and ambitions and hopes and plans, everything that I want, everything that I hope for, it's not mine anymore. It's all in your hands. It's all yours. Do with me what you want. That's repentance. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.